Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Hear now the word of God. Yet, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people. Consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. May he be pleased to bless it to each of our hearts. Let's be seated and let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this reading of your word. We ask, O God, now that you would give us attention Give our ears attention to the preaching of the word. Be with this, your servant. May the words of my lips be your words, that you would rule and overrule, and that you would use this time together uh, for your glory. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are times in life that we will find ourselves in despair. And we might even ask, why is this happening to me? Part of living in a sin-stricken world is that we live with the effects of the fall. We live in a world that is full of all kinds of different miseries. People get sick. People have cancer. People lose their jobs. Nation attacks nation. People die. You know, it's not a question of when you will experience difficulties, when you might find yourself in despair, or I should say not if, but when. The difficulties and trials of life, though, are not the end of the matter. For all of humanity will one day die and then will face judgment. And the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and the duties that God requires of man, our confession reminds us. And since man has failed to uphold his duties before God, a righteous and holy and just God then must hold man accountable. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 tells us. Our sin has earned for us the penalty of death. 
So the despair of this world really is nothing compared to the despair that will come after death for some who are outside of Christ. And so what is a person to do? Well, this is the good news of the gospel. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into the world to do on our behalf what we could never do for ourselves. He died for us so that we could live. So that we would no longer need to despair, but in fact, rejoice. We are called by the scriptures to repent and to believe, to trust and rest in Jesus Christ for our salvation. This, in fact, is the message that we see throughout the scriptures. People are called to turn from their wicked ways, from the futility of their minds, and to turn to God, to their Savior. In Isaiah 1, 27 through 28, the prophet said this concerning the nation of Israel. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together. And those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. So Isaiah reminds us that God saves the repentant by righteousness, but rebels, those who are standing against God, will be destroyed by God. And so God pleases God, in fact, to save repentant sinners. Jesus says in Luke chapter 15, verse 10, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The heavens celebrate when a sinner is repentant. Even one sinner turning to God in repentance is cause for celebration. And so this brings us now to our study in the book of Joel. Now what we have seen is God's call to repent. Now up to this point in Joel, everything has been about pain and misery. Pain which has already been endured uh, with that locust invasion that had come and also the pain that is yet to come, the, the, the despair of, and terror and horrors of a, of a war, of an invading army which is coming. And embedded throughout all of chapter 1 and up to this point in chapter 2 has been a promise of this coming day of the Lord. Now the message up to this point has not been filled with much optimism or hope for the most part although I've tried to point us uh, to hope. Otherwise, uh, sermons through Joel, at least in the beginning, would be pretty depressing, right? So I've been trying to show a little bit of the optimism, but there isn't a lot of optimism up to this point in in the book of Joel. Uh, But it is actually at this point that the tone of Joel's prophecy begins to shift. The people are to enjoy a return to prosperity. They will see their enemies defeated. They will receive the Holy Spirit if only they would heed this call to repent. With this call to repent is a promise of restoration, a promise of hope, a promise of forgiveness. It is the Lord alone who will restore the people from death to life. It is the Lord who will fulfill all of his promises. 
Now, last time, and when we studied Joel, and I know it's been a number of weeks now, uh, there was an alarm we saw that had been sounded, an alarm of a, which was a warning of this invading army. This mighty army was coming. It was coming to conquer the land like a thief sneaking into a house. Now, as horrible as this coming day of judgment is, there is now, that is now joined with this call to repentance. And so this is where we pick things up in Joel 2, in verse 12, where it says this, Yet even now, declares the Lord. Yet even now. The Lord, or I should say the people of Israel, had sinned against the Lord. They had rebelled against the king of kings. They had failed to love their Lord, their God, with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their might. Instead, the people of Israel had fallen into idolatry. They had sought for hope in other so-called gods. They had acted the part not of the faithful wife to her husband, but instead had acted as a prostitute. In fact, this is how the prophet Hosea describes them in Hosea chapter 9, where he says, Rejoice not, O Israel, exalt not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all the threshing floors. You see, the people had forsaken their God. They had forsaken their husband. They had forsaken their king. And the result of this rebellion, the result of this cosmic treason against God, was judgment. They were to be judged by a foreign people. They were to be judged by a God-hating army, a nation which in fact was much more wicked even than themselves. And yet, and yet for all that was coming, All that was coming to the people, despite this mighty army, despite this impending doom which this army is to bring, the prophet Joel has counseled them not to react with despair, but instead with faith. Even though there's judgment, the Lord has declared there is still hope. Yet, even now, there is a chance for the people Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. You see, God has not fully and finally rejected them. As a matter of fact, he's ready to heal them. God, through his prophet, is calling the people to repent. He's calling them to an attitude of remorse for sin, for crying out for forgiveness. He's calling them to weep over their wicked deeds and to visibly express this. God was calling the people to die to their sin and to turn from it and to turn to their God. The people of God are to turn to their God God, with their whole hearts, with complete and singular devotion, fasting and weeping and mourning over their sin. And, And understand this. This emotional demonstration, this was not just for show. In fact, Joel makes this clear in verse 13 when he says, 
your hearts and not your garments. What is he saying? There might be some who would be tempted to make a pretense of repentance through dramatic gestures. Rending or or tearing of your garment was symbolic of this kind of heart-wrenching repentance. But listen, the outward is not enough. True repentance is an issue of the heart. Rend your heart, not just your garments. This issue of the heart is is no different for us today. You know, you might put on your sad face. You might shed some tears. You might even be on your knees. But all of these things should only be an outward manifestation of an inward reality in your heart. The heart is what God is concerned most about. In Deuteronomy 10, 16, it says, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. Ritual repentance, no matter how fervently carried out, is of no use if the heart is not changed. So the prophet Joel is seeking for genuine repentance, genuine turning to the Lord, not just lip service. Not just particular forms. When men and women are submitted to God wholeheartedly, right actions and behavior follow. And so the people in Judah certainly needed to abandon their idols and they needed to turn away from sin. But this was only going to happen because their hearts have been changed. And don't we too need to turn from our own Idols? How often do we make other things more important than God? It's said that John Calvin uh, said that our hearts are idol factories. Isn't this true? Aren't we always looking for things of this world as objects of our affections and devotion? Isn't this the constant struggle of the Christian life? Other things taking the place of of God. How can I balance thankfulness and utilization of good gifts from the Lord with making those good gifts into objects of affection? How, how, can, I, how can I use good gifts without them becoming idols? Well, ultimately, it is God who will change the hearts of men. And we need the Lord to change us and to renew us, to renew our minds. We need the Holy Spirit's uh, help as we take every thought captive. And the good news is that the, the Bible has throughout promise that the Lord will do this very thing for us and in us. Listen to Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Earlier in Deuteronomy, the command was circumcised, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. And then here we see the Lord will do that for you. And what we see here in the Old Testament is the same that we see in the New. It is the Lord who changes the hearts of the people because faith is a gift. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. We are commanded to follow wholeheartedly after the Lord. And we are enabled by the Lord to do that very thing. And so we see, first of all, in Joel, a call to return to the Lord with your, with your whole heart. And that, that is accomplished because the Lord is doing that, that work. Now, why would that be? Why would this command be? Why does, if he's going to destroy the people, why even, you know, ask for them to repent? Because the Lord is gracious. Look at verse 13. It says, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. The people of God, Joel says, are to turn from their sin in repentance. And people can return to the Lord in repentance exactly because he is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. The Old Testament frequently teaches that the Lord is these things. In Psalm 86, verse 15, But you, O Lord, are merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And faithfulness. And that, th- those words kind of all together that come throughout the scriptures over and over again. God is pleased to pour out his grace. He is pleased to pour out his mercy. He is willing to forbear with his people. And aren't we so grateful that he does forbear with us? Our God is long-suffering. You know, God could have rightly at any time wiped out the world in his wrath. But he has chosen not to do that. Instead, he has sought to rescue his wayward children through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so this coming disaster of judgment, Joel is telling the people, could be avoided by repentance and faith. Verse 14, who knows? Who knows whether he will not turn and relent. This phrase, who knows, implies divine sovereignty and freedom. God is perfectly free to do what he wants according to the counsel of his own perfect will. God has pronounced judgment against Judah. He has pronounced judgment against the nations. And yet he is free to relent if he so chooses or not. Even if some were to repent does not necessarily mean that God will relent from his judgment against them. God's hands are not tied as if it, as it were by men. You and I cannot force God into something he doesn't want to do. We can only appeal to his mercy that he would not deliver what is actually deserved. And so Joel's point is simple simply to say that we must repent before God and who knows what positive things might come about it as a result. Might God choose not to bring judgment and instead bring blessing? Who knows? God is free to do as he pleases. That point is made again in Exodus 33 where where it says that I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I'll show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And so here's the point. 
The people of Judah are encouraged to repent, to seek the Lord. And perhaps this will result in God withholding judgment, or maybe not. But that is of little consequence, really, in the grand scheme of things. Peter asked this question in 1 Peter 2. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for what you endure, this is gracious thing in the sight of God. You see, the people deserved judgment for their sin. The consequence of sin is death, but the free gift is eternal life in Christ Jesus. If people would turn again to the Lord, they might still endure temporal suffering. They might still have to go through judgment. Nevertheless, the Lord will again pour out blessings on them in an ultimate sense. So that sin in this world may still result in a consequence, but the eternal consequence has been paid for fully by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the prophet Joel again calls for the shofar to be blown, verse 15. But this time, it's not for a call to defend the city. Now, it's a call to worship. All the people, in fact, are to be gathered together as a consecrated congregation. And no one is excluded. And he lists out various people. No one is to stay home. All are to come. In verse 17, the priests are to also have a specific and special duty. They were to come as ministers of the Lord. They were to intercede for the people and for the nation. And they were to say with tears in their eyes as they weep before God, Spare your people, O Lord. Spare your people and make not your heritage a reproach. I byword among the nations. Why should they say among the people, where is their God? The priests of Israel have the duty of intermediation between God and his people. And here they are commanded to take their stand in the traditional spot for priestly intercession in the temple between the vestibule and the altar. And Joel even gives them the words of their lamentation. And the appeal to the Lord is that the people of God might be spared and that they would not be abandoned by God. The priests are calling for Yahweh to uphold his covenant and not forsake his people and thus disgrace not only them, but his own name before the nations. More than anything, this is a plea for mercy. The fear is that the Hebrew people are defeated by this pagan nation, that they will be ruled by them, and that they will be jeered at and asked, well, where's your God? Your God must not be very powerful because we defeated you. It's not just that they would be a byword, though that is perhaps true, but that they would be ruled by pagans instead of God, and God would not be honored, but instead would be dishonored in this process. The fear then is for permanent captivity with no hope of restoration, which would bring shame to the Lord. The Lord was not to forget all about the invasion and ignore the enforcement of his covenant. The judgment would happen. Nevertheless, the people can hope for the Lord's mercy, which will restore them. 
So there's hopefulness in this plea of the priest. For the Lord will not forget his people, even as he chastises them for a season. You know, as we see this inter- inter- these interceding priests between the vestibule and the altar, what we also can see here is a, per- a picture of the perfect mediation of Jesus Christ, who stands between his people and the Heavenly Father, pleading for us, pleading mercy for us, on account of his own shed blood on the cross. And we can rest assured in Christ that God will not forsake his covenant people, that he will not forget them, whether it was then or now. And so the proper response to this unstoppable coming invasion is to turn to the Lord in in repentance. And so we see here is great urgency being expressed. We have these two alarms. The people are to be defeated by this overwhelming army, which is under the control of, of the providence of the Lord. But even as this foreign army approaches, we still know that there's hope for the people. The Lord will not forget his covenant. The people must seek the Uh, Seek the Lord in repentance. They must turn from their sin. They must turn to God in genuine repentance. A, A real repentance, not a contrived repentance. It must include a true change of heart and a turning away from their disobedience and wickedness. And the Lord's nature is to show compassion and mercy on the sinner. He does not have to forgive. But God is pleased to do so. God did not have to send his only begotten son into the world to accomplish redemption, but he did. He did this on the basis of his own love and grace and mercy. Ephesians 1 says, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood. In Jesus Christ, we have the forgiveness of our trespasses. And this was because of God's tremendous grace. Because of Jesus, who became sin for us, the Father shows compassion on us and empowers us to be truly penitent. Now, there are some who will feel sorrow for sin, but not truly be repentant. 2 Corinthians says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. True repentance and true belief leads to salvation. Paul calls this godly grief. But there is a worldly grief that only leads to death, and this would, be sorrow. this would be simply just sorrow for being caught. Or sorrow because of the pain that the sin has caused you. If this sorrow over sin is not accompanied by faith in turning to Jesus Christ, then that's not a sorrow which leads to life. Paul says that's a sorrow that leads to death. And so what Joel is doing here is leading the people as a prophet of God to true repentance. The people of God have sinned and they need to seek his face, before it's too late. 
And beloved, isn't this a call for us as well? What we see recorded in Joel is a warning and a reminder for us to seek the Lord, to repent of your sin, to turn again to God knowing that you have a faithful high priest in Jesus Christ who is pleading on your behalf. And though the Lord may not relent of the disasters of this life, he will show mercy and compassion on you and me eternally. And though this life may be full of suffering and disasters, we have an eternal hope which we can rest in. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your tender mercies and your grace which you have poured out through Jesus Christ. Father, we confess that we are sinners. And we pray, I pray, Lord, that we would take every opportunity to repent before you, not just in our worship on the Lord's Day, though certainly then, but every day. That we would be a people who constantly are repenting, constantly turning again to you, recognizing our own sinfulness and the aptitude of our hearts to create idols, to create other objects of our affections. Father, may our affections always be towards you. And Father, though we may experience difficulties and trials and even disasters in this life, we are so grateful that we are spared eternal disaster, eternal judgment. For Jesus has paid the price for us. We thank you, O God, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.